Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. Oh, we're going all boaty, Zach. We are going boaty and we've left Chris out as well, which is sad. That's because um, we both wanted this interview, so no offence. Li- and also as well, he's ginger and it's 35 odd degrees. I don't think he's even rolling off his... I mean, last I heard, he was lying naked and uncovered on his bed, like just shrieking in pain at the heat. So I've heard he's just slathered himself with ice cream in a desperate attempt to get cool. Yeah, that would not surprise me at all. So I'm pretty sure Chris was unavailable today anyway. Who have we got with us? We have James Bartle, who's a PhD student from Plymouth. He's specialising in sea power and communications. And in the process of his work, he gets the rather fun job of interviewing veterans. Slightly jealous. There aren't many veterans from my period left anymore. James, welcome to History Hack. Together we're going to talk women in the Royal Navy in World War II. So we're going sort of proper boaty, but a boaty bit that's ignored. Yes, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. And as you said, aren't I lucky to get to spend time with these veterans, remarkable women. And I think today we're going to talk a bit about the Women's Royal Naval Service during the Second World War, because when we think of um, the Royal Navy during the Second World War, we automatically think of ships at sea. I mean, you know, just a dumb thing, really. But we don't really think about how it's coordinated from the shore. And so... My PhD is basically looking at this, these different shore commands uh, around the uh, United Kingdom during the Second World War, which basically protected home waters throughout the conflict. So let's put this in a bit of context, because if you are a Royal Navy and World War II dunce like me, your knowledge basically consists of Hood, Bismarck, um, Airfix models. Airfix models. Don't forget the airfix. Don't <laughs> don't sit there and denigrate the airfix models. I'm I'm not having you do that. Boss. Love an airfix. Um, <laughs> see, see, you're outnumbered. Shut up. I just um, bitter because they. I can't. There's always leftover bits. Always. 
we should probably get back to um Just history to though, should yeah yeah um, all right then but i mean if you are one of these dunces then you know the this this command structure doesn't kind of mean much to you so how does the royal navy work when it comes to home waters who's doing what and where and all the rest of it well firstly i don't i, I don't blame you because automatically when you think of the war at sea it's the war at sea isn't it so we think of ships on the sea uh we think of great sea battles you mentioned bismarck there you know the battle between the hood and the bismarck king george v and all, all that sort of stuff but actually as part of my you know phd i'm trying to change this uh, p- uh perception somewhat because around the waters of the united kingdom were a series of shore commands and uh these shore commands, you know, they, these can be traced back to the days of Nelson. So, for example, like port admirals, residing admirals, um, they were responsible for sending reports off to the Admiralty. Um, they were responsible for protecting shipping in a specific area. And this is what, you know, this is what uh, naval commands are doing in this in the Second World War. These commands are responsible for, um, you know, protecting shipping, hunting down e-boats. Um, operating mine mine sweeping functions, things like that, and they're dotted all around the coast. So, so off the top of my head, like um, you know, you have ones in, you have a Dover one, you have a Portsmouth one, you have a Plymouth one, you have a Western Approaches Command, which is based up in Liverpool. And what is really interesting in terms of my research is that they're a joint service headquarters. So. Yeah. You know, within these are mainly underground. These are like uh, multi-story bunkers. You know, par- partially underground, partially not underground. And in the underground section, you would have a joint operations room with the Royal Navy, Air Force, and Army all working together. And it is this joint um, uh, inter-service cooperation that now that enables them to take part in the largest like operations in World War Two. So, for example, the uh, the evacuation from Dunkirk is is based from it's operated from Dover Command. The D-Day landings is operated from Plymouth Command. Protecting that invasion force is operated from Plymouth. And what is really remarkable and something wh- why I'm on this podcast is that these commands were run by a predominantly female workforce from about 1941 onwards. I love this. And there's there's a legacy of protection as well, isn't there? Because it and it it stays even though warfare develops. So obviously the Navy protected Britain, but then aeroplanes come along in World War One and, and like nineteen fourteen and fifteen, the logical um step is to place the navy in charge of defending Britain, isn't it? It moves in sixteen over to the army as the bigger service. But I mean the initial reaction is to leave protecting Britain in the hands of the Navy. So these women have got a huge responsibility on their shoulders. Uh, absolutely. And do you know what? Yeah, uh, talking to surviving veterans, they they you know that almost cliche line, they just got on with the job. They had a job to do and they just did the job. But my goodness, didn't they? Ju- they did the job so well. Like, um, you, you know, protecting ships, it's, it's not it's not easy. As anybody has ever seen me try and open up a tab on like Internet, Internet Explorer, I struggle with that. I struggle with logging in data. I, I, I struggle accessing my Twitter page, heaven say. So, um, so if, you know, just picture the scene. So we're, women in this like big command, command room. So you've got maps on the walls, table maps in front of you and a series of telephones around the side so 
So these telephones were connected to radar stations. They were connected all around the country. So they would get a phone call and they would say, like, ship A is in this position. And then they would have to plot ship A. And, you know, this is, this is, not, this is the 1940s here. If you make a mistake, there, there are going to be some serious dire consequences. And it's just a testament of, to these women that these mistakes are really inf- infrequent, at least in my, in, at least in my research. Um, and yeah, and again, we we tend to focus on ships at sea, but where are the ships at sea getting their orders from? Where are they being told to go? Where where how do they know that the convoy that they're escort going to escort is in this position? It's from it's from headquarters on shore, and who's running the headquarters on shore? It's female service personnel. This is brilliant. Um, they had a super fan prior to nineteen thirty nine, and that was George V. Not in a pervy way, but he adored a girl in uniform. He thought it was magnificent that women had come out of the home. I mean, and he was quite an old fashioned dude, uh, but his wife was not. She was a feminist in her own way with her giant feather hats and her uh, parasols. But I mean, she wore Queen Mary wore the trousers in that house. So he's used to strong women. And he, as a naval man, he adored the Wrens. He thought they looked so smart. He was so proud of Britain's women and, and girls coming forward and taking a part in the First World War, because this isn't an new thing in 1939 isn't it so just tell us a bit about how the wrens comes into being it's certainly it's certainly it's certainly sorry i'm having trouble with that word it's <laughs> certainly not a new thing in 98 in the second world war uh the wrens were actually formed in 1917 in the midst of a manpower like crisis the first lord of the Admiralty, sir eric geddes um, um wanted to free up the men to send to sea so the next logical step for him You've got this great untapped resource of female uh, service personnel that you can use. So he really kind of um, pushed the Wrens into coming coming into being. And and similar as to what we'll see in the Second World War, women women were drivers, women were telegraphists, uh, women did all sorts of manner 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 of jobs, and they did and they did them well. However, unfortunately, as we will see later on with the end of the Second World War. After the war, we see this um, retraction into gender spheres. So in 1919, there was passed the Restoration of Pre-War Practices Act. This act is massive because it basically makes women not eligible to do the jobs that they, they have just been doing. They do this because they don't want to provide competition for men in the workplace. However, this is not the end of the Wrens. Um, throughout the interwar period, they, they formed uh, uh, veterans, formed the Association of the Wrens. They formed the magazine called The Wren. They hold different sorts of events, galas, uh, things like that. These are all designed to give women voice and presence. And the Wrens, they don't go away. They, co- they constantly lobby for the service to be reformed. And then by 1939, with the combination of the international um, uh, crisis with uh, World War II looming, they actually, it actually happens and Wrens are reinstated. I must say, I'm nowhere near an expert on this subject. I would always direct somebody to go to the work of Hannah Roberts or, or um, Joe, Joe Stanley if they want to uh, 
you know, learn more about it. But it's such a fascinating story. I constantly find myself having to reread it because it's so interesting. <laughs> In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Shall we talk about that recruitment process then? When they decide that they do want wrens, you know, they do want women to, to fulfill certain roles because at one point they end up being so swamped they have to close recruitment, don't they? So talk us through kind of the types of women that end up in this service. I mean, there is this thing about, you know, inverted commas, superior service and, you know, supposed snobbishness. Um, but, you know, why, why are they swamped? Why, why wrens as opposed to, you know, the, the women's Royal Air Force, you know? Well, you hit the nail on the head there with the whole kind of image of the of the superior service, and this is something that did, they didn't um, they didn't actually try to dissuade. Um, but to like return to that kind of point of um, the Rens being socially exclusive, uh, they were actually based on skills and uh, skills and abilities, um, you know, as well as you know, as well as like writing a letter saying that you wanted to join the Rens. You would, for certain roles, you would have to provide, let's say you were applying to become a typist, you'd have to provide a certificate of um, typing speed, for example. Um, but it's also so much more about character. When they, were in, uh, when they were interviewing for, let's say, a coder, so, you know, you're, doing, you're dealing with really sensitive information, they wanted, some, uh, they wanted people who were quite quiet for the obvious reasons, that they wouldn't divulge what their... What their um, they're what they're doing but you know it's a bit of an understatement to say the wrens were popular um in 1939 like uh, when they 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 opened it up they had 3,000 vacancies does anybody want to guess uh how many people actually applied uh um 30,000 i'm gonna say double this is this is for like bragging rights within history (laughs) not on the line not on the line it was actually fifteen thousand. So I don't know. I don't know who gets the bragging rights there. I'm going to say I'm closer. I mean, you can, but who's in charge? <laughs> <laughs> this is a window into the kind of thing I have to put up with. Listen, yeah. pity this me. Is, this is a pity well. Me. I'm just bad. I'm just in the spirit of these women. I say no. I win. Move on. <laughs> but but thinking about it, you know, from my from my limited perspective, you can you can see why. You know, women would want to join. But you know, from nineteen forty, from nineteen forty-one, you know, you could join the Wrens from seventeen years old with a letter from your parents. But many young women, this is their first, you know, uh, opportunity to leave the home to mix with new people, people to experience new things. Um, you know, forge friendships, etc. Uh, this is such an exciting opportunity for for, for people, but. Uh, yeah, the the amount of apl- applicants for the rent for the rent was quite crazy. But by uh, 1943, they had to close the app, close applicants for about six months. 
because they were just getting so many applications. 1942, um, the, the Ministry of Labour said that you had to have a, a family member uh, in the Royal Navy to actually, you know, be in the REMS. So, yeah, it's so high demand. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. See, I really like this because Nanny White was a wren. Yay! Um, hooray for... Look at his face. He's just like, all of a sudden, it's like, can I touch you? Oh, um, I never, I never met Nanny White. She she died in uh, 1959. So oh wow, that's um, really young. Yeah, um, but yeah, she she did the whole uniform thing. We don't have many photos from that period, but she was kind of one of these um, navy families. In fact, Granddad White was that um, they both had parents who um, died in the merchant naval service and they went to the same um boarding school for orphan well not orphaned but um for kids who lost a parent in the service um and that's how they met you know that one was uh, head boy the other was head girl and then shenanigans happened um over now the course we have of a little war. napoleonic nerd now you have a little napoleonic nerd but interestingly granddad bucked the family trend and he went to the air force so Nanny White was was kind of sticking to the family tradition much more, and um, the, the others in the the family did the the same thing actually. So um, the her siblings um, went into actual um, not merchant navy but royal navy. Um, so there's this is this is, feels kind of quite close to home, and it's interesting to kind of hear that if you had somebody in your family who was navy you kind of wanted to stay in navy and that kind of tendency why was that why was there this kind of focus on family connection well i suppose it is looking for the right sort of person well the kind of character the grounding you know the sense of dis- uh, the sense of discipline that knowing when to when to speak and when to not speak these sort of, a sense of duty these are again it's kind of you, we're kind of trying to fight this kind of image of the rent of course, it is socially exclusive, exclusive because, you know, these will be daughters of admirals, for example. But it is those ingrained characteristics that they're looking for and um, and also suitable experience. So, you know, if you let's say using typing, if you didn't have a, um, a certificate of typing speed and you've just done some work experience, because let's remember also like uh, you, you can uh, add, 
I think from 1941 onwards, you could join the Rens for like se- from like 17, as long as you had a, a letter from a, uh, a parent saying, you know, you're good to go. But uh, yeah, like as long as you had like, let's say some work experience of typing, they, they'll take, they'll take you on. And they really did pride themselves. And again, it's building this image up as a, as a superior service and I'm biased because I love the Royal Navy. So uh, definitely he's superior service. <laughs> yeah. Let me just clear up that Nanny White was not the daughter of an Admiral. That, that's not where, um, where all of this comes from. Um, you've looked very closely at Plymouth in particular. Give us some examples of the people, you know, the personal stories there. What are they doing? You've touched already on, on one individual who kind of gets the recognition. But give us give us some others to just kind of put some some not exactly faces to the thing, but, you know, kind of some examples to, to flesh this out. Now, rather awkwardly, considering what we just talked about, uh, quite, a, quite, a few, quite a few of the people I've interviewed were daughters of admirals and and um, and uh, um, and other naval officers. But there, there's this lady that I interviewed that I that I actually absolutely love she's 90 bearing in mind she well, she must be 100 now because i interviewed her when she was 99 bearing in mind 99 years old she's still running a language school and when i when i tried to organize a meeting with her she said um yeah can we do it a little a little bit later as i'm manning the phones at the minute so i'm the only one in the office and i'm manning the phones so these these women are really indomitable but uh, that particular uh that particular uh, that particular lady yeah her her father was a naval officer um but she'd actually grown up um with her family being part of the brethren i don't know if you've you've, you've heard of that but that is a very strict kind of re- re- religious orthodoxy like um you know she didn't have to um for example it was a very bare existence i do encourage anybody to kind of look that uh, look that up but um she actually made it to become a boat's crew now in the in the wrens during the war becoming boat's crew was literally the pinnacle because you get to uh you get to uh, you know go out and bring in these big old ships like they would pilot them in so you would see you would have these kind of grizzled old like sea dogs and seafarers on board their ships thinking all right so how how are we going to get? Uh, how are we going to get into port? Then up over the side rail would come this, you know, seventeen year, eighteen year old Ren saying, "I can take you in." So, so like, you really do get a, a sense, a spirit of these people. And she made me laugh actually, because she was um, in Plymouth um, uh, at the time of the uh, when the D Day convoys uh, set off, and um, she was in charge of. Uh, uh, giving out the sailing orders uh, for the for the uh, convoys, and she said to me rather glibly, "I must have done something right." As they all left, so I th- I thought that was just brilliant because <laughs> being able to maintain that sense of humour and also playing her part in the biggest maritime opera- uh, operation in history, it's really quite something. So you look at Plymouth, uh, but how uh, Britain obviously still at that point is a worldwide empire. That's a lot of water and a lot. That is of a life. lot of water. Yeah. So are there equivalent efforts to get women into the Royal Navy, into Royal Naval roles or uh, Ren roles elsewhere in the empire? Yeah, absolutely. That uh, slightly slightly later than in Britain, but there was definitely that 
that kind of drive to you know get women involved in the in the in the navy like um in canada australia and new zealand um when organizations were formed albeit with a slightly different name because they come from those countries but um yeah they understood similar types of jobs they were to the to lfns really kind of um uh, take, taking up the slack because the the catalyst for for women's involvement in in a kind of naval role was 1940, 1941 because the the admiralty made the decision that uh, for positions that didn't require didn't require sea experience or physical sh- strength or sure women would literally t- take all the roles of that um and then later on in the year we have the uh, na- national Se- the second national service act which made women have to register at a um at a uh, i can't think of the exact name but like at an employment center so yeah um but certainly i i women across the world it's something that hasn't been covered that much and it is something that i am looking to kind of gain some more information on because you know it's all well and me and good talking about Plymouth and I do have examples from other places but we, you do kind of need that wider perspective but if I can trouble you with just one story about a group of wrens up in Liverpool um, now Liverpool was the kind of head of the naval command system called Western Approaches it was basically in charge of all shipping coming across the Atlantic and uh, being part of the Atlantic it had to deal with the U-boat threat so so they had this training centre called the Western Approaches Tactical Unit. Now this was this was this was operated by a team of friends. So what what would happen is you'd get an experienced captain in to learn about the latest you know U-boat tactic, and you know he turns up in his gold braid and his hat and you know his nicely coiffed hair, and um, and he would take part in these exercises. So what they would do, they would have a, a U-boat versus a ship. For example, and you know the the U boat had to the ship had to kind of evade the U boat, and you know these captains would take part in this exercise, and there's somebody behind the screen operating the part of the U boat, and they, they keep getting sunk. They keep getting sunk. You know, officers that have been in the navy ten or fifteen years, they keep getting sunk. So you know they're very cute. Like, so who is this sinking me? And then you know, out from behind the curtain, Wizard of Oz style comes these wrens who have literally who have literally just sunk a a an experienced captain of uh, 20 or so years and these tactics were really important in the battle of the atlantic there's a great great book by someone parking called a game of birds and wolves that that look that looks into it so i definitely uh, encourage anybody interested to read that one as well <laughs> I love this idea that they just had their asses handed to them by a bunch <laughs> of girls. You can imagine <laughs> the conversation. Oh, well, it's really d- dreadfully unfair. Yeah, well, it would be like, it'd be like um, Uncle Albert, wouldn't it? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, there were 20 of them. Big blokes, 20 <laughs> big blokes. It was not an 18-year-old girl. Yeah. <laughs> it does make me giggle. I mean, I, get, I gave the book to my dad to read the other day and he, he loved it absolutely that was that was almost his favorite part of it so that's good let's stay with that kind of stigma attitude is there stigma i mean this is the 1940s this is not an era where you know you can kind of call people out for the misogyny and all the rest of it do we have any evidence of that kind of thing 
well, yes, we do, we do we do have like a few a few prominent examples of this. Uh, uh, we, women, uh, as the war progressed, women were sent overseas to kind of man. Uh, he wanted to say man, but it should, should be a different word. Operate overshore uh, overseas facilities, and actually, a commander in chief actually um, prevented a a a sailing of these runs over because they didn't think that they would be able to to cope and a war zone was no place for a, for a woman and actually by the end of it he after he did get, come into contact with Renz as part of uh, his commute um as part of the communication he actually admitted no i was wrong and this is a common theme i would say for it like women through their through their actions, proving proving themselves, proving 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 themselves as good as men, and um, yeah, and I, I just wish that was kind of reflected in how they were kind of treated post war because uh, we might come on to this, but there is just definitely a a contracting of those gender spheres again, as it as what happened with the first world war. They clearly yeah. never met Alex. I mean, yeah. you have one conversation <laughs> with Alex and you have to stick in any idea that a woman can't hack it in a that's hostile a, environment. That's an encounter I would like to see. You can, you can stick your gold, gold braid up yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bring it. Bring it. Uh, you're talking about contraction of gender spheres after the war. Is it like World War One? Is it like a disappointing return to... I mean, you've mentioned one woman who just seized a, a different avenue to go and be amazing in. But uh, is, is it disappointing for these women after the war? Uh, it's, it's a little, you know, like all things kind of history, it's a bit, it's a bit nuanced. Uh, the, the Royal Navy... Um, the, the the Royal Navy kind of reluctantly kept the the Rens going because uh, other other services, other auxiliary services were keeping them going. But um, you see a contraction of um, I'm just trying to get the number up here of something like 120 categories and roles um, that Rens were doing during the war, cut down to about 55, and uh, you wouldn't see. Uh, and women could not apply for those. Um, oh, I've got the number here. Yeah, 129 categories in the war were cut back to, to 55 post-1945. You know, iconic roles such as boats crew were disbanded and almost all, all the technical jobs, really. Um, yeah, and these the women would no, not be able to apply for these roles until, you know, 1990. So it's, you know, it's a fair long way. In, in wider society, you still had, you know, uh, prejudice. You had the marriage bar and the civil service. But um, but there is, there, I would say, it, there is a definite improvement um, from after the First World War, mainly self-confidence, really. Um, again, I, I talk about this, this, what one of the people I interviewed uh, being 99 and still running a language school like another one I interviewed is 100 it's 101 and has just like brought out a book so it did give self-confidence women could go to universities with grants um you know subjects such as diastetics and you know there is a school of thought that the kind of movement that happened in the 60s the, the kind of uh, um moved to um breaking these kind of traditional 
you know, what our women should be doing actually led from, you know, the women of the 1940s because they're, they're very much the mothers of the children of the 60s and um, moving forward. So it, it's kind of a, maybe a story of like personal empowerment rather than actual um, tangible changes in the, in the fabric of a society, really. So just to kind of sum it up then, Wren's in the Royal Navy and the Navy's success in the Second World War. How key would you say they are? Well, I, well, I feel on a bound because this is the subject of my PhD to say, I would say, because my, my PhD is about shore command, I would say absolutely vital. And I'm, I, it sounds a bit glib, but if you act, I am finding as a, you know, the wonderful process of research, as I'm going through my, my research, I'm just finding out how more and more important um, these women are. And I keep coming back to the D-Day landings because it's the D-Day landings. Like it's, it's the re-invasion of Europe. And like, um, you know, without the women coordinating these different like ship movements, delivering uh, saving orders, it's the logistics that, that make it important. Like, you know, even today, like loading up Zoom or like, this takes time. This this takes somebody to do it, you know. And without them, you know, it would be yeah. Without them, I won't say Europe looks at in a as I won't, I won't say Europe looks different today. But they certainly played their role in how Europe looks right now. James, it's a really Nice point on which to end. Thank you for this. Uh, you are on Twitter if people want to find out more about your work, aren't you? Tell us where they can find you. Yeah, you can find me at James Bartle number four. Um, uh, yeah, it's got it's got a picture of me in front of the sea, appropriately. So uh, you know, if anybody has trouble finding me, and uh, yeah, and uh, can I just say thank you so much for inviting me on there? I've been looking forward to this, so it's been a lot of fun, and thank you for looking after me. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.